edited by William Hannes and Didi Kristen Tatlow, China's quest for foreign technology beyond espionage is a collection of new essays on the topic. Today, we've got a big group of authors from that book to talk corporate espionage, academic transfer, and what, if anything, the world should do about it. Didi is a longtime Asia-based journalist currently at the German Council on Foreign Relations and also works with Project Synopsis in Prague. Anna Puglisi spent many years as a U.S. national counterintelligence officer in East Asia and is now a senior fellow at CSET. Ryan Fedasik is also at CSET. And last but not least, Andrew Speer, a former USTR official during the Trump administration, now at Strider, a software firm that helps to, quote, enable customers to secure their innovation and compete in a new era of global strategic competition. Welcome to China Talk, all of you. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. So first off, Didi, talk a little bit about the origins of this book. Bill Hannes is a uh, huge expert in this area. He's been working on it for very many years. The area being, of course, technology transfer, China's system of achieving that. And he and a couple of others, Anna Puglisi, James Malvinen, wrote a book in 2013, uh, which published when I was in Beijing, working as a journalist, I was with the, the Times at that point. And I was just completely stunned at the content of that book. It was really like walking into a dark room and somebody turning on the light. I suddenly kind of figured out what the heck was going on, all the stuff I was seeing around me. Fast forward to about seven years later, and Bill and I decided to write an update, essentially, to try to recast the issue with so much having taken place between 2013 and 2019 or 2020. And in order to really communicate a sense of everything that had happened in those years and a sense of urgency about what was going on in this sphere. So that's why we decided to write it. Anna, you were involved in the first book. Am I correct? Yes, I was. I was one of the co-authors. Which one do you think was easier to write? Oh, um, you know, I, I think neither was easy to write because they both serve a very, very different purpose. The first... Chinese industrial espionage, we really were telling the story in some ways for the very first time. I mean, there had been other works, but we really wanted to provide a comprehensive treatment that was really based in Chinese language materials and be able to tell it, you know, from a multifaceted perspective. The second China's Quest is actually, I think, takes the story a step further. And because we have so many authors, it really allows us in this book to do deep dives in ways that we weren't able to do in the first one. A lot has transpired. You know, China has changed, the world has changed. And so to really be able to capture those nuances and also to be able to bring more nuance to the, the discussions you know, as we do those deep dives. Has the source material become more or less accessible, given that on one hand, you, given that there's been much more scrutiny of this issue in the past seven or so years? I, I think it depends. It depends on the on the particular area. I don't know if my, my co-authors would like to comment on that. I think broadly, we've noticed that the source material disappears uh, after publication pretty rapidly, which is why we've striven to archive everything immediately. Uh, a few of the websites, for example, that hosted some of the overseas professional associations we talk about in the book completely disappeared while we were still writing the chapters, which made it difficult to do ongoing research and makes it really difficult if you don't know what you're doing and don't know how to archive and treat sources properly. Yeah, one, one thing I would add to that, I think that's right. Sor sources are going away, but we also see new sources popping up as tactics change because, you know, this is not a static game. Uh, things are changing. And so sources go away, but new sources appear. Why is there anything online easily searchable about this? Like, like what is it about the sort of Chinese system that makes doing this sort of research uh, in the open source even possible in the first place? Well, I mean, a lot of it isn't actually... A secret at all. I think that's the key point. In a way, it's protected by the Chinese language, which we haven't paid much attention to forever, really. There are still very, very few Western linguists or from other places out there. And, you know, so one issue is definitely the language. Another issue is that in order to communicate, in order to achieve its goals, the Chinese government also and the party also needs to connect broadly, connect widely, connect to its overseas people, connect to all its scientists, connect to businesses. And, you know, it, it has it publishes a lot of what it's doing. It doesn't. Of course, there's a lot of stuff that it doesn't publish. That's very obvious. 
but it does also publish some, you know, some of the basic things that really should have told us a long time ago, if you like, what what was going on here in terms of the drive to acquire sensing technology to, to grow powerful and strong. And, and, you know, we didn't really take any of it too seriously. But having said that, I think definitely there are all kinds of information that need to be accessed. And what is available in public is very useful and important, but really not the full story. So speaking of things that have changed in the past seven years, Anna, what's this idea of a stateless global society? And how does the narrative you guys are telling in this book cut across that idea? Right. So I think really at its core was the assumption that China would change and acquiesce to the global norms of commerce, of scientific collaboration. And for really many years, the U.S. and Western nations' engagement with China has been really predicated on the certain beliefs of globalization, market economics, transnational labor pools, internet freedom, and, and really what it takes to be innovative. And, you know, as a result, these discussions of China as a strategic competitor have often been shaped by a bias for some of these key assumptions. And so what we really try to, to uncover in, in this, the idea of the, of the myth of the stateless global society is that, you know, those are all really well and good, except, you know, here we have a growing peer competitor that doesn't play by the same set of rules and really has a very different worldview. And in many cases, these areas, if you look at the way the Chinese government talks about these particular issues, they really do see it as a zero-sum game. Right. Um, I think it's important to note that the book, um, just to maybe address one part of it too, is really went global, I think. And we know we had really important chapters, I think, on Japan, on Korea, on Europe, which I think are making a very important step of connecting this problem around the world in ways that people in other parts of the world just simply haven't been aware of until now. And, you know, that's crucial because we're not going to be able to deal with this issue with the procurement, if you like, and taking of massive amounts of science and technology and intellectual property by the party state in China, unless we deal with it globally. Because, you know, it, it of course, there are certain things that are only available in some places. But one thing we see is that as things tighten up in the US, certainly there's a double down going on in Europe. We're seeing pressure all over the place here. The situation is fairly difficult right now. And it's a very different atmosphere here on this issue than there is in the US, also in other issues like trade. Sure. So, Anna, I'm curious, you know, the, the idea of the myth of a stateless global society, um, you know, 1990 to 2020, I guess, was a pretty remarkable run for the world and for technological advancement. Um, are, are you worried at the prospect of sort of losing the belief in 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 kind of what international interaction can bring on these fronts? Are, are you worried about the downside effects of sort of throwing away that vision whole hog? Right. Um, so the idea of bringing this to the fore wasn't to throw away that vision whole hog, but really to highlight that it only works if everyone ascribes the same system and plays by the same rules. And that's not to say that there haven't been incredible gains um, and there's true benefit. And in fact, we really double down on our values here in the U.S. with you know an open free society, collaborations that include transparency and reciprocity. But it really is to highlight that globalization hasn't really worked for everyone. You can look at um, just some of the issues that we have here in the U.S. as far as, you know, areas that have been left behind. You know, the hollowing out of manufacturing and a whole host of other areas that hasn't always been win-win, which is what people have been sold. In fact, we laugh win-win as China wins twice. But if you layer on top of that, yes, for short term, there are a lot of people that are making money. But in the long term, you know, when we see the lack of transparency, when we see challenges to a fair and open, uh, fair playing field, open markets, which is, is clear in what's happening, as well as, you know, subsidizing key areas of technology, key industries, including companies, that it really is, do we want to keep that vision of, you know, all of the benefits of what globalization is supposed to bring? Or do we want to have a zero-sum vision of those global interactions? 
And so it's really important, I think, to double it, to examine when different areas are playing by the rules and when they're not and to shed light on that. Yeah, I mean, I do want to push back a little bit on Anna on the sort of reduction that all we've gotten out of this is people making money, right? Like, sure, China's subsidizing all of its solar panels, but that means we get more um, renewable energy. Like, sure, there may be scientists who who occasionally exfiltrate um you know, R&D to the PRC. But at the same time, you know, there, there's been an enormous amount of benefit that the U.S. has gotten from having all these wonderful PhDs from the mainland come and work in American labs. So, Right. So actually, my, my comments weren't to say that it all was about making money. But you make a really excellent point about the importance of, of talent and growing that talent. But by ignoring the fact that the systems are not the same, we really undermine all of those Chinese scientists that want to do the right thing, that want to participate in the global norms of science by pretending, you know, that we don't, we aren't dealing with, you know, a more authoritarian society that, you know, has some really clear rules about what is supposed to be shared and what's not. I think that exactly what Anna is saying, it makes a lot of sense, at least to, to someone like me, you know, the party extends leverage abroad in ways that are uncomfortable or that are alien to foreign governments and often obfuscated or masquerading in ways that mimic the kinds of systems that we have embraced over the past 30 years like you identify, right? The United States and its allies lack like a clear analog for the United Front, but the ability to co-opt institutions that we have traditionally leveraged for gain is part of the issue here. And it's just a challenge to discriminate between organizations that might be government or party organized and those that are legitimate organizations that are serving the interests of the people that comprise them and primarily for the benefit of the Chinese diaspora. I think we have to as the others have said, and Andrew, I'm sure, would have a lot to say about this too, but we have to bear in mind the systemic differences here, which are extremely significant, because they shape really the outcomes of these technologies and how they're used on people and how they then you know, shape the picture of, of who we are as people and what we will become. You know, there's some chance, perhaps, of... Uh, shaping this all to the good in open societies where there's free speech debate, honesty in discussion, in public discussion, um, and, you know, courts where real cases can go through and improve things for the greater good, for for humanity, if you like. Uh, Then there's a great difference between that kind of a system and a system where these technologies are, you know, deployed in very often very hidden in specific ways. I'm not saying that doesn't happen in the so-called West. It does. But again, it's a question of what kinds of society you're trying to shape here and how much control do people have over their society as it's shaped by technology. So, you know, I don't think that it's really going to work to simply say, well, but, you know, they've, you know, great Chinese PhDs, which is, you know, and there are great Chinese PhDs, no question, some individually wonderful people, but that, you know, they sort of contributed a great deal because if they're being manipulated, if they're, if they're being kind of managed behind the scenes, if their information, if their technology is being managed behind the scenes and used to particular purposes, then we do have a problem when those purposes are so directly anti-democratic. And that's a political problem. And we have to understand this politically, not just technologically or scientifically. It needs to be an integrated response to all those issues. It needs to be an integrated understanding. And I think that's where people really uh, struggle to understand this problem. And that gives a rise to this whole whataboutism argument. Well, but what about in America? Well, but what about in Australia? Well, but what about here, there and everywhere? Well, you know, it really depends on the kind of the power structure that's informing things that happen. So Didi and Ryan, um, both of you two have done some work looking at this issue from Europe and Germany. And I find this particularly interesting because we've done shows in the past focusing more on the U.S. context. Can you give some color about how European companies, academic institutions and, and governments are looking at these issues? The issue is that European perspectives differ really markedly from those that I'm familiar with in the United States. Uh, the Europeans that I've talked to from some firms, some companies, tend to worry more that the United States is 
kind of overhyping the China threat, that really it's more of an economic pacing problem, but that they're really content to engage in what they see as and believe to be free market competition and let the best battle of ideas win it out. In fact, you can look at, for example, Horizon Europe, which is a great example of this. It co-funds an initiative, China Innovation Funding, which is chock full of information and publicity for European researchers to go do research in China, how to apply for awards from talent programs and other things like this. But the issue is, as Anna said previously, the systems are fundamentally different, right? You've got these vast networks of resources that the party organizes. And the issue is that it's really hard to say this organization is founded and run by the Communist Party only to serve its interests. And this organization is founded by Chinese diaspora members to uh, promote solidarity and provide employment opportunities. Because often, most of the organizations that we're talking about do a little bit of both. Uh, but it's really hard to discriminate, and, and therein lies the problem. I, I think you need to understand, and I wish that more Europeans would understand, and, and that's part of the reason we, we wrote this chapter, that the systems are not the same. You know, we found one organization in France, for example, a professional association nominally trying to help Chinese workers collectivize and, and defend rights and interests and share information with one another. They had received 19 awards from the Overseas Chinese Affairs Office of the State Council and from various organizations of the United Front Work Department of the Communist Party for their contributions to running talent plans. They had sent numerous delegations to apply for talent spotting competitions to bring talent back to China. And the issue is that it's fundamentally non-competitive, right? A lot of the money that goes into initiatives like that is not directly from the Chinese government, right? The recipients might not even be aware that that is the fact. It's not a check that people receive with Xi's name on it. The issue is that the state council and, and the, the party fund organizations that are government-organized NGOs, gongos, as I think CNAS likes to call them, uh, resources them, and then they make payments to overseas researchers to encourage them to return to China. And so there are these hidden flows that fundamentally make the competition non-competitive. Just to build on that, both both what Anna said previously and then Ryan's point um, in in Europe, one of the things that we do in this book and just in our normal careers is we're constantly comparing what is being said in Chinese language sources and what is being said in English language sources. And so, you know, Jordan, your question actually kind of fits right into this earlier, your question about, well, you know, aren't we, isn't there mutual beneficial from all this cooperation? If you look at what the Chinese are saying, if you look at the government, if you look at what Xi Jinping is saying at Davos, it's the same kind of line. And I think they do that intentionally because they know that that has resonance to Western listeners, to, to those in Europe, to those in the United States. We all want win-win cooperation. It would be much nicer if we could all just get along and, and cooperate and there were no sort of geopolitical dimensions to all of this science and technology cooperation. But the reality is if you go look at what Xi Jinping is saying in Chinese to a non-Davos audience, the message is very different. The message is all about not kind of vaguely defined global science technology cooperation, but how can we extract innovation resources from the West, relocate that back to China to commercialize it, to give us kind of a, an advantage and increase our comprehensive national power? That's the narrative. And I think a lot of uh, those in Europe and, and in the United States, the same, we, we miss that because we're focused on, we hear what we want to hear and it's coming in English language. We understand it, you know, cooperation. It would just be so much nicer if that's all there was. It's not just she that's doing the, the double messaging. You know, for a different report that I wrote with Emily Weinstein, who you had on the show, I think a few weeks ago for CSET, we actually investigated the About Us pages of these professional associations geared for the Chinese diaspora in various countries. And we looked at their About Us pages in English, where they were available, uh, and in Chinese, where they were available. And we found that, you know, in about 40% of cases, the English that was presented on the website differed substantively from the Chinese, like whole paragraphs were altered or missing. And in 19 of the 20 cases where we observed that this had happened, the associations advertised in Chinese 
that they were transferring technology to China in some way, that they were sending participants to participate in talent recruitment programs. And that information was missing from English language websites. Now, you could speculate as to why that might be the case. There might be some very good reasons. Maybe the web administrators just didn't update the page. But at some level, it seems like there is deliberate deception by groups that are backed formally or informally by the Communist Party. I first sort of realized, if you like, what was going on um, in Europe around 2013 when I uh, picked up on a message from Xi Jinping in Moscow to Chinese students. And it's a New Year's message. And of course, it's Chinese New Year today. So Happy New Year, everyone. <laughs> it's a lovely festival. And you know, I've got my spring flowers here in the corner. Um, you know, because it's not just the things that do and don't get said in which language. It's also about how do people who are trained within a certain political ideological system in a certain language um, understand things. And, you know, I mean, if you've come out of the CCP system, you understand things differently from people in other countries or in other political systems, particularly in democratic systems, which tend to deal in the truth. Um, it's a very different situation in a communist system. Yeah, well, I mean, I, of course, you know, people lie a lot. I mean, that's why we have courts, right? That's human nature. You've got to keep things on the straight and narrow. It's, it's, it's always an effort, right? But the point is that you need a system to enable that. If you don't have a system that enables or encourages truth-telling, then you're in a very, very different game. And, you know, China doesn't have a system that enables truth-telling in public. So when you see something about, like, how Xi Jinping so-called puts out a letter to the Chinese students in Moscow saying, you know, dear lovely students, you are the, like the morning sun, you are the youth and the hope of the future. Please study hard and think about your parents and think about your ancestral country and think about how to repay it. And people who are politically sensitized as kids who've come out of this CCP system are, in particular some who are perhaps politically ambitious, they understand immediately what he's saying. He's saying, guys, you know, redouble your efforts, bring that stuff home. We need it. We want to grow our businesses. We don't have the technology. We need the technology. Um, and, you know, then literally what happened in 2013 is that Xi Jinping did this. And then a bunch of Chinese overseas Chinese students in Berlin reportedly rushed out, wrote a letter, a lot of late night drama, contacted the Chinese embassy in Berlin and pledged their loyalty to the motherland or the fatherland, whatever you want to call it, um, and, uh, you know, it, that, this then greases the wheels for another year of technology, kind of science and technology acquisition and, and redoubled study and never forgetting that your first loyalty must always be to, to China, to the ancestral country and not to the country where you're studying, living, making friends, perhaps would like to stay, for example. So, you know, assimilation isn't really considered a good thing uh, by the CCP at once. Chinese people to stay loyal. So I think that that's also, you know, it's a question of how this language is understood, even when it is fully said in public, then that just brings things on, I think, to, to, to another level. But also to return to that practical level that, that Ryan was mentioning about what is and what isn't said, what I see here in Germany, and it's the same in the States, uh, it's the same all over Europe, is lots of falsely registered organizations. So literally, the charter of an organization such as the Federation of Chinese Professional Associations in Europe, which is here in Frankfurt, um, says we are apolitical, we have no views on this, we have no views on that. Now, that's simply not the case. So, you know, there is also deliberate deception going on. So coming back to that point that, that Andrew and Didi made, um, how do I frame this? Like, can you really blame them um, in the sense of there's a way to tell this narrative in another uh, from another perspective, which is that, you know, if I am the president of a developing country, let's say Turkey, let's say Mexico, let's say Argentina, and all of my smartest people are leaving the country and most of them are staying in this other nation and actually forgetting, you know, maybe sending remittances every once in a while, but are, are really not doing anything to sort of like help help economic development um, from the places where they came from. I mean, you know, there are other countries that have sort of gotten stuck at the 6000 to $10,000 GDP per capita level and have never made it out. And if I'm running a system, I'm really focused on that and trying to do everything I can to, uh, to sort of stop that from happening. So is the, is the difference here a measure of scale 
um, given the context of sort of the broader U.S.-China relationship, the fact that, you know, China can pose a threat to the U.S. in the way that Turkey or Mexico couldn't, what are the differences here that lead to the laser focus on this? Honestly, Jordan, I, I do think that from a Chinese government perspective, a lot of this is very, very understandable. And of course, you're going to want to acquire advanced technologies if they exist out in the world. You know, back to Anna's discussion earlier about the kind of the vision, the ideal of kind of the stateless global society, kind of the implicit in sort of the, the vision there was, you know, okay, you know, we in the United States and the West, capital-intensive advanced technologies, China has labor-intensive economy. They will focus on kind of the low-end manufacturing. We will do the R&D. It will all be great, kind of mutually beneficial win-win based on comparative advantages. You, you do kind of have to take a step back and say, well, from a Chinese perspective, are you going to be happy in perpetuity down at the low end of the, of the value chain? And of course, it's quite obvious that, th- that they're not. And so, um, you know, m- my view is that part of what we're doing, you know, in this book is saying, hey, th- these things are happening. Um, it, 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 to me, it's not totally surprising that they're happening. Uh, now, some of, the, some of the tactics, some of the specific cases are, you know, egregious. And, and certainly there's concern because of some characteristics of the, of the political system in China, the authoritarian nature of it. But at just a sort of a human kind of level, I think it's very understandable that China would want to kind of upgrade its industry, rise up the value chain. Is this more of a pacing issue? Is it that there are non-competitive incentives generated from state-backed policies in China and that's what we should really be concerned with? Or do you think that there are also incentives for criminal activity or a disproportionate amount of criminal activity like visa fraud or wire fraud or things like that. Um, Is that really the angle that we should be more concerned with? I think there are incentives for for criminal activity. I think you see that a lot with the the talent programs kind of over and over again. Um, And I think we should be concerned with that. Um, You know, I think one of the premises of the book, though, is is that a lot of this activity is beyond espionage, right? It's not necessarily illegal espionage or theft. That's the tip of the iceberg, but then there's the huge iceberg down here that's kind of gray zone, extra legal uh, in many cases. Um, And so, you know, I I think the point is that it's, it's totally understandable that the objective from the Chinese perspective would be to acquire this advanced technology and move up the value chain. I think we have to uh, look at that eyes wide open and say, of course, they're going to want to acquire these things. And there is, again, there is this geopolitical dimension to these things. It's not just all about global collaboration and, and kind of everybody uh, can be happy. There, there is, you know, in economics, there is kind of this idea of some countries are at the high end, some countries are at the low end, and that's just the way it is based on what your comparative advantage is. So my point is just from that perspective, it's entirely kind of humanly understandable. Uh, that the Chinese objective would be to move up. Uh, now, all the illegal stuff definitely has to be addressed with. I think the harder stuff to deal with is what we focus on in, in Beyond Espionage, which is the gray zone activity. Okay, if something isn't explicitly illegal and yet it's not in the U.S. national interest or in the national interest of European countries, and it is in the interest for the Chinese government to do this, how do you deal with that set of issues? I think that's very difficult. And I think, I'm just going to add in here, I think it really gets at the larger question of what kind of a system, what kind of a global system do you want? Um, because we look at some of these policies and they date about decades. And the one that comes to mind, you know, as we, we talk about, I think in the West, you know, the wonders of we send our students overseas for cultural experiences and to learn more about um immerse themselves in the culture, you know, Chinese students have been sent out with a purpose since the opening. Um, And some of the policies that are, you know, state council policies, and one that that strikes me, it comes out in particular, is the whole idea of serve in place. So the whole system around these programs is set up to extract technology and to to leverage. It's not about collaborations that where there's a win-win, where we're following what we believe as the global norms of science and the global norms of commerce, um, but ways to, to kind of undermine that system. 
and it really gets down to what is the vision of the world that you want. Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, I mean, as Andrew says, this is sort of understandable and also reflects this much older desire in China to to develop and to not be so-called behind or backward. Um, and, of course, that is rooted in the experience of having been overrun to a certain extent by some aspects of the West, which is a real one. But I think in this sort of kumbaya, let's share it all sort of globalistic uh, world, um, you really need to ask what is the outcome of all of that? And when you see, for example, technology being quietly appropriated in order to do things like, you know, create aircraft launching systems on aircraft carriers, which then could well be deployed in the Taiwan Strait or around the Taiwan Strait where you have, you know, we all know there's 24 million people in Taiwan and over 80% of them want to have nothing to do with the CCP. That's how high it is. You know, it's probably 90 or more. I'm probably understating it. And then you need to ask, well, what is the purpose? What is the moral point here that we're actually dealing with? And not everything is the same. You know, democracy didn't exactly come easily in the places where it exists either. It's often very, very hard won and hard maintained. So should somebody really be able to just kind of have all the science and technology and also have full political control and really very substantial abuses at home, thinking here of the Uyghur lands, thinking here of Hong Kong, my own hometown, which has had a state security law come down on it, which is terrifying to people. And there's a lot of stuff happening now. So you need to ask, what is the outcome? What is the impact of this technology transfer? It gets back to a kind of a political moral question, if you like, not just an economic or developmental question. So, Anna, you, you, you talked about how uh, Americans send students abroad for cultural, um, you know, for cultural learning. And the first thing that popped into my mind was this book, Shoal of Time, A History of the Hawaiian Islands by uh, Gavin Davis, which I just finished up a few weeks ago. And, you know, I don't think those missionaries were going over for cultural experiences. Maybe the sailors were um, for their sort of like week long sojourns. But there is a very a very long history of westerners going to other countries around the world not necessarily with the um only trying to you know uh study the language and 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 learn the art and or what have you so um just to sort of complicate the the the, the story a tiny bit it's not um anyways i might just cut that part out i'm not sure how relevant that is but it was a really good book yeah i, I mean okay. <laughs> i didn't go quite as well as i as um, i had it in my head I wasn't talking about yeah. I wasn't talking about missionaries or you know, I would. I mean, I'm kind of talking about since the 70s, but that's you know, <laughs> anyways. Can, can yeah. I can I just leap in here on on the Hawaiian parallel because you know here in Germany there's a very long Orientalist tradition. In fact, this whole notion, the phrase Silk Road, was coined by a German aristocrat in the 19th century from something or other. What you see here is just for generations of Germans, for example, have really had this romantic relationship with China. Oh, it's about the philosophy. Oh, it's about, you know, Taoism, Buddhism, balance, etc. And these are wonderful, fabulous things. But it's simply not the interest that comes from the other direction. And, you know, that's obviously an example of, of unbalance in, you know, China has different goals in mind right now. Europe has sort of been there, done that on a lot of this stuff. So it's a complicated debate, but sometimes I think that we're a little bit like, you know, a badminton and a tennis match, that we're not actually playing the same game at all. There's just very different ground rules going on, and, and that's difficult to handle, and especially in the grey zone, because everyone says, oh, but you're just being mean about, you know, China or Chinese. And, you know, my, my own moral compass there is always the people of China themselves, especially those in Hong Kong and Taiwan who can still say stuff. And what they think about it all, and I can tell you that what they think about it all is ballistic compared to the stuff that, you know, so-called Westerners say, because we are more concerned about being seen to be offensive. But Taiwan, Hong Kong, they're absolutely, most people, I would say majorities are absolutely clear about things. And they, they're very concerned about the immediate political problems and human rights problems and what their children's futures will be like. If the CCP, you know, really does manage to parlay this technology transfer into being, you know, the biggest, strongest, most powerful country in the world. 
They're worried. So before we start talking about solutions, um, I want to sort of, this is a podcast, so you guys don't see this, but right now we're on a video chat where there are five white people um, talking about this issue. And the concern that many have when you start getting into these sorts of discussions of how to address technology transfer is that sort of the repercussions and the broad brushstroke you know, potential for law enforcement to address these issues is serious and, you know, can cause really, uh, you know, unfortunate problems in society that uh, I don't think any of us want to see happen when it comes to sort of d- discrimination and in, in companies and, and uh, academic institutions and even in the way people are treated by the law. So thoughts on this, the best way to sort of frame this in uh, a way that doesn't end up leading to the the sort of broader stigmatization of anyone uh you know anyone with any sort of china connection well jordan i find it ironic that that usually any discussion of the behavior and that's really i think what we have to crystallize because this is really country agnostic um if we saw or if there was the same kinds of policies programs behaviors taking place from any other place or organization, I mean, I think we'd have the same reaction. Um, I think it also comes back to some of our comments of the influence piece as well, because we can't ignore that a lot of these groups that, and in the United Front is one of them, plays on our own identity politics and really trying to make this an issue of ethnicity as opposed to These are central government policies and programs that seek to undermine the global norms of openness, transparency, reciprocity, and also challenges the vision of what kind of a society do we want to live in when we cannot ignore the atrocities and the human rights violations that are going on. So it's much broader than that because I mean, as Didi is saying, as some of the concerns as and folks and friends that we we all have, um, you know, the Chinese people deserve better. I think the fundamental way to minimize the unwarranted discrimination, right? That's that's the question here, is to get more fidelity and to just cut narrower. And it's very possible, right? You can go and find specific information and do some digging on a case by case basis. You have to do it in Chinese. There's no question. But it would certainly be a mistake, for example, to paint with a broad brush and say, you know, uh, we're going to prohibit professional associations specifically for Chinese people in various countries. Right. But at the same time, like, look at the United States. We found probably 30 such organizations in the United States. Every single one of them is registered as a 501c3 organization with tax filings. And yet on the About Us pages of their websites, they talk about how they do consulting work for state-owned enterprises in China, which seems a little bit strange or not necessarily within a 501c3 mission set. And so I think that it's fairly easy to honestly enforce laws that are already on the books in a fairly fair way if you just get more information and understand what's going on in the Chinese language. And there are other examples of this. I mean, you can find highly detailed information. We collected and actually found 3,000 people who had received talent awards under the Thousand Talents program. And it's fairly easy to understand where someone works, where they went to go work or were offered a position, and whether or not that should even be you know, considered uh, possibly a red flag. Because in a lot of cases, you're right, it might not be. But you've got to do the, the homework. And law enforcement agencies need better language resources to do that. So one of the interesting proposals that has been bandied about in the Biden administration, as well as in this book, is the idea of clemency. Can you walk us through that? And what do you think the upsides are for that sort of approach to this issue? Well, um, I think this is a tricky issue, very tricky issue. And we did indeed have some debate about it. We've all come from very different backgrounds where we know different things about different things to different degrees. And I think that the main idea was to really, to to show good faith in the sense of trying to put information out there so that 
scholars and scientists who may truly not understand what they're doing, who may truly be embedded in certain social thought patterns or path dependencies that have led them to innocently get involved in certain groups, structures, friends, I mean, old colleagues, whatever, would have the chance to sort of realise actually what the problems are. Because to be fair, we have been ignoring a lot of this for a long time ourselves and have maybe not offered the environment in which this information was available to them before, that there would then be an opportunity for them to say, well, you know, honestly, I just, I had no idea about X, Y, Z. And I do have friends here in Europe who are, for example, members of professional medical guilds or biosciences guilds who really, you know, and I know them personally, and they are not, you know, they are, they see the whole thing fairly innocently. And and in fact, some of them have taken very deliberate steps to walk away from some of the structures. One of them was approached, in fact, by the MSS many years ago to, to spy for China. And he said, no, and I've seen the documentation. And after he said no once, when he was a young student, they never approached him again because they don't want someone on board whom they can't rely on. So, you know, but he's in these things for friendship reasons. So I think it's, it's, it's a question of that kind of person. And this gets us back into the gray zone, which is so difficult. So that was really the focus of an idea of clemency. Others, completely correctly, I think, also made the point that a lot of people will abuse that and that where you can ascertain deliberate and knowing participation or actions, then they need to be justly pursued through fair trials. And I think that that was also taken on board. So maybe it behooves us to create a clearer argument or set of facts about what is and what isn't okay. And I think that we have, in a public sense, not done a terribly good job of that in recent decades. I think in the US, you're much sharper on that, certainly here in Europe. Um, there's a great confusion about what is this thing, the party, what is this group, what they don't even, you know, there's no concept of intentions or actions generally. So, yeah. I might be able to venture a bit more as someone who's never worked for a government, but is from the United States. It seems like clemency can be a good or bad idea depending on your actual policy objective. And there are trade-offs between deterring future crime, gaining transparency and awareness of the scope of the party's operations, punishing past transgressions, and buying public support for future prosecutions for, let's call them like the really bad apples. And uh, clemency helps, especially with the last option I just mentioned and, and some of the other ones as well. But then it, it punishes you and, and prohibits you from punishing behavior that is probably anti-competitive or illegal in the kind of which like we've been talking about. So there are definite pros and cons, but it really depends on where your country's government is already at and what you want to accomplish with the goal. So the idea of type one versus type two errors in this issue set. I guess my concern is that, you know, now that Anna and Andrew are outside of government um, and, you know, we haven't hired the 5,000 new linguists yet um, until that sort of capability is built up. I'm particularly worried about the type one errors. And I feel like, you know, coming back to a values discussion, right? I mean, how many type two ones are we willing to have in order to ensure that we don't make any type one errors? I think I understand what you're getting at. My view on that is that, you know, the the scale and scope of this system that the, the CCP, the PRC has set up is enormous. It's multifaceted. It is complicated. There are government initiatives. There are so-called societal, you know, initiatives or aspects to it. There are, you know, private enterprises involved, universities involved. It's very complex. Therefore, the way to address or the way to get at a, that kind of system from a, from a U.S. perspective or European perspective, I think is going to have to be similarly multifaceted and complex. So I do think government has a role. But we all know that government tends to paint with a broad brush and, you know, kind of bring sledgehammer solutions uh, to issues. I think what we're trying to do at the company I'm at now is take a little bit more of a scalpel approach. And Ryan spoke to this a little bit earlier. The, the information, the data does exist out there to be very targeted in how we're addressing these issues. I think that has to be a part of the uh, solution as well, a part of the response. I think there are other aspects that need to be a part of the response as well. Universities may take a different uh, approach than private sector companies. 
which is going to be different than government. And so, I mean, that's kind of how I, I think about it. Um, and hopefully an approach like that would, would help to minimize these type one errors where, you know, okay, we understand government paints with a broad brush, it brings a sledgehammer. So let's narrow the scope of what it's trying to do. And then, you know, our society in the U.S. and in Western Europe, I think we do tend to, you know, eventually uh, work pretty well in kind of this very complex way where various actors have different roles, responsibilities, and are, and are approaching things and solving things from a different perspective. I think you really hit the nail on the head with this is a very comprehensive problem. Um, and the kinds of things that our system is up against, it's not designed for that. And I think it really kind of gets back to the the point that our systems are very, very different. And the challenge when you have two different systems and you're trying to argue point to point, it, it often it's very tactical and, and isn't going to necessarily get you the desired outcome. And so it really requires, you know, stepping back and taking a, a strategic approach to how do you deal with an inherently different system that undermines the openness and transparency and, and the processes you know, that we've just come to assume are the way that everyone does business? You know, it, I feel a little bit right now that um, it would be really nice if China were to take a little more responsibility for what it's doing. I think that it's using a lot of its people to achieve certain national ends. And its language about that is very clear. We see Xi Jinping talking about what overseas Chinese do to further the glory and the strength and the economic social development of the motherland. And then you read in the updated national defense law on January 1, 2021, that development interests are now a cause for the use of armed force. And you just kind of go, well, look, this is such a huge, intricate, as Anna just said, comprehensive, interconnected situation and and plan with not a master plan, if you like, but so many bits connecting and pushing for similar outcomes that, that, you know, in a sense, people who are trying to simply track it to say, hey, look, this is what it is, um... You know, I think that we also need to be very clear about sticking to what it is that we're doing. And maybe I say this because of the situation in Europe being really rather different from that in the States right now or Australia. And it would be really nice if there was sort of, um, not that there will ever be one, but, you know, if the Chinese government were to actually, you know, for just a little bit, actually kind of tell the truth about what it's actually doing here with people. Um, And some people may not like that comment, but I stick by it. You know, the first victims are always going to be the Chinese people. It might feel with some policies like uh, certain folks in the administration were or are really taking an axe to this tree. But there are still low hanging fruits that we can pluck like very easily. Right. And I think that's how you avoid massively getting type one errors uh, in ways that would not be acceptable or moral until December the United States hadn't added three of the seven sons of national defense, these universities in China that are intimately connected with the defense industry, to the export control entity list. And it was a very basic step. It's one that I think makes a lot of sense in particular from those universities, and yet it hadn't done so. And there are a lot of these low-hanging fruit kinds of policies that have not been enacted uh, in other countries, which is really where it matters. The United States is pretty advanced and or aware of the issues concerning talent recruitment and access to overseas technology by the Chinese government and the Communist Party. The same is not true in Europe, where the threat environment and the threat perceptions are a lot different. And yet it's extremely uh, important that we make this point and that the United States government take the case to allies and partners. Pick a metric, any metric, the number of Chinese students who return to China after graduating, the number who uh, receive scholarships from the China Scholarship Council, the number of professional associations uh, that are transferring technology to China, the number of uh, coercive joint ventures that have been set up with firms. The United States is a plurality 
uh, of those metrics, but it is not even a majority in many cases. There are European firms, Japanese firms, Korean firms, other firms in other countries that are also suffering the same kind of practices and coercion, uh, and their governments may not be aware of it. It really varies case by case. And that's the point that I think a lot of us were trying to drive home in writing uh, the global scope of this book and drawing on so many voices. Because it's really going to take a team allied effort to address the problem at the systemic level that Anna and TD are talking about. Thank you all so much for coming on China Talk. All right. Thank Thanks you for having you. us. Thanks so much. Look. 简单如 A B C， 打开我的格像个 A P P， 外号 A C E， 跟你不在一个维度，我们 A C G， 圈里太多 A C T O R， 你们输出的只有 C O R， 我是 M E T E O R， 开个说唱艺术展在七九八，理由发哥们周润发，我的 flow 很炸，让你头很大，左手还敢打死右手分打，我把冰魔卡当瘦身叉，为何我的肚长肉？因为周围太多 rap 让我不想瘦，发音清楚我不 mumble， 我是 rap god 哥们不 humble， 你的女朋友是萝莉塔，我的女朋友。是阿丽塔，你的 LV 广州火车站批发，四个字形容我唱的 hip hop， 就是汤姆汉克斯、汤姆克鲁斯、马特达姆勒、布朗詹姆斯，小人都在，但是大佬们都让你啊。最近这些 beef 特别新鲜 ，diss 特别贫贱 ，piece 都是明面，为什么你能看得到？我有鹰眼，我不要你的金链，哥们我要银联。妈，你在屋里放着把 Uzi 装到的木皮箱。抄袭，我是致敬。我们可能长得像，但是不一样。用 wordplay 硬抄的男人，擅长做 freestyle 的男神 ，KPI 都是超额完成。将我哥们录放倒个干声，感觉生活像做音乐了。有好的 EQ 才能做个 master， 所以别让他们把你压缩，让我把这世界的失真打破。You should know that don't fuck with us, don't fuck with A B C. 我们脾气不太好，吵得出来，把到 live house， 他们只能 give you we. Me, messed up B on my G, we do that masterpiece. Lee, that's my destiny, best of me. 在这逼的我跟 A R C， 钻石这菜，牌子的技术，钻石和白金这种水平，怎么变得靠近我们用事的对手？从来不是敌。不进阶，你们差得远。不只是演出比你大了点。嘴里喊的都是 real hip hop， 不仅不愿喊的还没天堂家里花里花的钱。没实力的活该吃一辈子屁。对自己不严格，就没有办法成为 A C E。写的每四句就累死你，难怪你配置低。我们的差距像是 by KFC A B C， 可做像 Eminem 搭配 Drake beat。Travis Scott 喊的 A C E， 你是毁灭战士，我是 C C D。不是流走风也能够控制 pace B A C me， 我是你哥哥，自己琢磨一下到底谁是 D。给你一中指纹，你来 C G。嘿，这句 shout out to Udo。每当我嘴臭完刷牙的时候，又 shout out to 杀手，你不得不服输。我继承了前辈的活力，我感激。没流行眼泪和臭气不关心。我 twenty four seven like Kobe C 的，我并不需要活得弱鸡的满意。Real rig and that's real， 哈、huh, ，rap kid gonna kill， 哈、huh, ，有必要的活我就 kill Bill， 哈、huh, ， remember A B C we ill。这组合叫 A B C， 贝雷帽配个黑皮衣，活力堪比。L A P D， 写比个手势 P A C E， 再猜个反派压着 C B A， 面前这道菜需要 T T V， 撒点盐，我们拉高门槛的目的是为了过滤圈里那些 D D V T D K 的标签，在我每个段落用作品质保证，未曾来过，像 John Rambo 出手必须干活，让外挂裂枣们就地散伙，你模仿的是形式，我做说唱时还会是实时名字，带着致敬的心，时至今日，你碰到不是钉子是块试金石，问。歌词中肯，那歌是公认。懂行的都双手合十公分，站在黑的眼里又何止痛恨？缺货们都该做个核磁共振，别阿谀奉承，用心评价。呃，那些歌让我 Z Z Z， 这行业应该重新定价。需要拉动的不只是 G D P， 再送你个 L O L， 字里 K O 了多少个 K O L？ 靠音效的都在学着吹口哨，哥们正在试料，舌头会揉到。拿子当火盆的哥斯拉，无法控制强迫着何时发？因为我像斯柯达碰上特斯拉，这区别不止维度和时差，依旧保持嗅觉灵敏，就是。论事，我就是个阴影，收获灵感，给你制造瓶颈，想看用 flow 让你秀逗的情景，不是你口中的 OG， 我跟他们不沾边，所以别拿我跟他们相提并论，真能让我吐三天。呵呵